1: everybody. This is Sandra Beck, and we've got such a great show today. We're going to be talking to Paula Munye. Now, she has written this great book. There's a new one out. It's called Blind Search. She's also got another great one, borrower of Bones, and she's got some great writing books, writing with quiet hands, you know, writing. What's the beginning one, Paula?
0: The Writer's
1: Guide to Beginnings. The writer Guide to Beginnings. I mean, there's lots of great books that she's written, both fiction and nonfiction. She's a wonderful writer, and she's my very good friend, and I'm so excited to have her on the show today because we're going to be talking about everything from, you know, great presents to buy people, you know, the writing process, you know, writing fiction and nonfiction, and then also what's really cool is she works for a literary agency, so she's kind of running the gamut of everything you Could possibly need to know. She's kind of got there in her head, not to put the pressure on. (laughs) But it is really fun, Paula, because we could talk about anything today and it would be a great show.
0: Well, I'm so looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on.
1: Sure, sure. So let's talk about, let's start by talking about your books because I think, you know, your books are really cool and they're, you've got these how to books and then you're also executing what you teach in your books, because I'll be honest, I've read your how-to books, and I've also read, you know, um, Blind Search. So it's really fun to go, oh, she does follow her own advice. Isn't that fun?
0: Well, on my good days, yes, I follow my own advice.
1: (laughs) So give us a little background for those of our listeners who are meeting you for the first time.
0: Well, Blind Search is the second in the Mercy and Elvis series. It's a mystery series published by Minotaur, And it stars, if you will, former MP Mercy Carr and a retired bomb sniffing dog named Elvis. And together they team up with the game warden, Troy Warner, and his search and rescue dog, Bliss, who's a Newfoundland retriever mix based on our own rescue here at home. And they solve mysteries in the Vermont wilderness.
1: And I love that because that incorporates, you've got an MP, you've got our military police, you know, you've got a dog that you had, you were a um, military brat. So you had your own tour of duty, you know, as a, as a young lady growing up. Um, How does that work in weaving into your stories?
0: Well, having grown up in the military, I have a real soft spot in my heart for all military personnel (laughs) and their families And I think in a way, you know, I was graduating from high school three years before they accepted women at West Point. And if if I had been born a little later, I'm sure my father would have made sure that I went to one of the academies as many of my friends who were the eldest boys in the families did. Exactly, right? So I think in a way it was for me, a way for me to explore the road not taken, right? Mm -hmm. To write about... Uh, a female military uh, service woman so I think that's part of it plus and part of it's just that I love dogs and I love these dogs and I had done this fundraiser for Mission Canine Rescue which is a wonderful organization out of Texas and what they do is they rescue military dogs who've been abandoned so the army does a fairly good job of making sure that dogs who serve in our you know as bomb sniffing dogs and and other military working dogs get repatriated with their handlers when their, their service is up and they retire. But the defense contractor dogs often end up in kill shelters and they need to be rescued. And that's what Mission Canine Rescue does. And I had met so many of their dogs and so many of their dog handlers, and I fell in love with the soldiers and their dogs. And so this was a way for me to honor that and write about it.
1: See, I love that. I love that you raise awareness for that because you know, we don't really talk much about, you know, we talk about service dogs, we talk about, you know, but we don't talk about the dogs after service or in my case, I have three dogs that are deployment dogs. And they are dogs that when the you know the the owner was deployed who takes the dogs. Well I end up with three of them. And, you know, dogs are such a big part of our life. I love that they're, you know, a big part of your book and, you know, that this rescue helps our dogs after their service because You know, we, we just, we're just so much better with a dog. At least I am, you know, my, I got to tell you this wonderful story. My, my brother, um, my younger brother is a NASA rocket scientist and he was recently transferred to Alice, Texas. And he was here in uh, Los Angeles playing with my dogs all the time. And when he bought this half finished property in Texas and started doing the remodel, three little puppies were born in one of his sheds and no mama to be found anywhere. And he went from playing with my three dogs to having his own three dogs. And we're calling them right now, red, blue, and black because of their collars. They're identical. And yeah, so I'm coming up with all these great names like Simon, Simon, Alvin, and Theodore, like He's got a cat, so he could be Eeny, Meeny, Miny, and Mo. You know, naming animals is so much fun. Mine are Sophie Peanut, Sally, and Chicken Nugget. What are your dog's names?
0: Our dog's names are Bear, which was his name already when we rescued him. He's a Newfoundland retriever mix who inspired Susie Bear in the books. And also Bliss, who we named after Follow Your Bliss. we had a contest actually and readers wrote in what they thought our new rescue should be and uh, she was my very zen dog so she really lives up to her name she's a rescue from texas too so she's a great dog and then we have a cat named ursula because she growls like a bear she's a rescue cat from west virginia and she growls like a bear at the dogs even though she only weighs eight pounds and they weigh 80 pounds
1: Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. I mean, it's so much fun. They bring so much joy into our lives and your dogs have shown up in your books as, as well as your kind of your dreams, your desires and your experiences.
0: Absolutely. The dogs show up, um, all kinds of dogs show up in, in the new book blind search, which is a story about a little boy who gets lost in the woods and he's on the spectrum. And so mercy and Elvis have to save him and figure out, how to communicate with him so they can figure out who, who, you know, who's out there murdering people in the woods and, uh, and bring that person to justice as well as, as save little Henry. And it was great because I got to find out not just about the dogs I already have in the series, but also introduce a new dog. And that dog would be a service dog because they have service dogs who really help kids with autism. Sure. better in the world. So that was fun too.
1: That is fun, you know, and it's, I love the magical world, you know, as a reader, my favorite thing is to be swept away, and then look up at the clock and realize like three hours have passed, you know, and I'm completely transported into somebody else's imagination, and you know there's a couple of my books that I like to go and reread and revisit, and I feel like I'm going back home for a visit. you know you you recognize the setting, you recognize things. How much of your own you know when you envision a story, how much of your own experience comes into it? Do you tend to set your books in places you've lived, or do you research, or is it just a composite of your experiences? Well,
0: certainly the mercy. Elvis series is set in New England and Vermont you know and I live in New Hampshire which is next door to Vermont and I love Vermont I love all of New England and you do get that sense of setting you know and I think maybe having grown up as an army brat and gone to 12 schools in 11 years and moved around so much um, I love kind of having a hometown you know Pat Conroy who was also a military brat said that every military brat just wants a hometown you know yes that's what I've given myself with New England. So I love the setting. I love the woods. Uh, it's, of course, it's also great for mystery writing. <laughs> you know, lots of crazy stuff happens in the woods. And so it's a great place to set murders, right? So, so I think that absolutely is, is drawn from truth. And certainly my experience of dogs, my experience of the military, um, and my experience of relationships and families. But they always say, write what you know. Mm -hmm. But there's also write what you know, write what you'd love to know, write what you, you know, what, what you love. So anything I love, I threw, I throw in the books. I love Shakespeare. I love storytelling. I love nature and the woods and hiking and all that stuff goes in the book one way or another.
1: See, I love that. I mean, that's, I think, why your books are so rich. You know, and you really can can dig your teeth in because, you know, a lot of times with mysteries and, you know, kind of bringing people to justice stories they get very caught up in the technicalities, which I really, you know, appreciate in some books, you know, but I didn't, I don't pick up a book to get a law degree. You know, I want the people, I want the experience. I want, you know, I want to sit in the hot tub if they're in the hot tub, I want to walk in the woods or, you know, go by the stream. And, you know, I really like the richness of that. And I really like that these books make such great gifts and, you know, when you give the gift of a book and right now I'm working really hard on my annual toys for tots event, Paul, I've been doing this 33 years. I did my first one at 17 and um, the Marine Corps adopted me as part of their spokeswoman many, many years ago and helped put me through school. And, you know, it's led to, you know, 30 years later, me doing the same thing. And one of the most fun fundraiser parties I had was asking people to come to my ranch. I live on a horse ranch in Southern California and bring your favorite children's books as the donation. And do you know, everybody was wandering around. Imagine 150 people inside and out, Southern California, it's warm at Christmas time. And they're coming in with, you know, sometimes they were really obscure books that they had to special order. And then you would see people go, Oh my gosh. I remember that. Like we had a big Beezus and Ramona, Beverly Cleary love fest. And whether you were Ribsy, Henry Huggins, the Beezus and Ramona series, there was a group of about 20 middle-aged people absolutely gushing over these books, because it was a walk down memory lane. But when you think of, you know, Runaway Ralph or Stuart Little, you know, some of these, that he was E.B. White, but you look at these things, how they have the power to move us. And what a great gift, you know, whether it's it's borrowing of bones or blind search, you know, that you want to give as a gift, which are some of Paula's books, or if you have... Um, a writer or a budding writer in your family. Paula's got a bunch of books um, for that as well. But the gift of a great book just can't be denied.
0: Well, I, I always give books as, as presents because I think, especially for children, you know, I have three grandchildren, but they live in Europe, so their native tongue is French, so they speak good English, but they always need more books in English, and so I take great pleasure in finding all my favorite children's book classics, as well as those that my children loved, right, because I always read it to my children, and, and I always find those books for my grandchildren, and I think there's nothing like giving what amounts to a gift of the imagination. That's what a
1: book is. Well, and I think, you know, when you have a multilingual household, you know, we have a multilingual household too. I found that, like, I remember Winnie LaSalle, like the Winnie the Pooh in French and Madeline, um, whatever an old, an old house in London, all covered with vines, lived 12 little girls in two straight <laughs> lines. They left the house at half past nine. The youngest one was Madeline. Like I can still remember that book. I bought Madeline, even though I had boys, I bought Madeline in English, French, and German, because you can do that now. You can go on Amazon. You can do that now. And for me to read to the kids in three languages or four languages a book that I loved, they also can master the story in their native tongue, but start picking up words and learning, you know, learning, you know, yeah. children's books, you know, look at how much we teach kids. And that's why I love the Thomas the Train series. Do your, any of your grandkids have the Thomas the Train?
0: Yes. Well, my sons loved Thomas the Train. And so I have little, only granddaughters now, and, and, but I'm sure that they, certainly my youngest Mikey loved Thomas the Train and we had all those books
1: all those books. I mean, and you know, what's so great about them, And and this was something, you know, I was talking on another show, Paula, about, you know, how athletes go into kind of a mental practice, you know, if they're they're you know, I think Andre Agassi was the first one to use that visualization in a tennis match. And he would play that tennis match in his head over and over before playing the match or Tiger Woods would do this. Well, when you read or when somebody writes something, you have the power to not only change their state, but you get to change their thinking. You get to give them an experience that forever changes that reader from before your book to after your book. And I I don't think people really talk about that that much. They talk about, oh, it's a great story, oh, it was interesting, oh, it was da-da-da-da-da. But when you really fall in love with a character, And you get to see how they think. Like, what a cool present to get the window into how somebody thinks.
0: Well, sure. And they've done all these studies that prove that people who read fiction are more empathetic than people who don't read fiction. And that's because we're literally putting ourselves in the shoes of other people. And that's what empathy is, the ability to do that. So when you give a child a book, you're teaching them empathy. You're teaching them reading skills. Even when you just read to them, there was just a study this morning on CBS this morning, where they said that people who read to their kids as toddlers, those toddlers have better reading scores at 15 than other kids who weren't read to as toddlers. So it couldn't be more important.
1: It couldn't be more important. And, you know, even if you are like struggling, like, you know, I know a lot of people that follow me and listen to my shows are single moms too. Like I am, I'm a single soul supporting mom now for, this will be year 13. I raised my kids since they were three months old and two and a half years old on my own soul supporting. And, um, I always read to my kids, but one of the things that I gravitated to is I gravitated towards women's fiction that were geared towards single moms. And I would read these books. And first of all, they would give me hope because, you know, they would find love, you know, and get the happily <laughs> ever after. And you need hope. We all need hope. Um, but it also, when the heroine would do something, Paula, as a single mom that maybe I wouldn't choose. I got to try something on for that minute. And I I remember this one book and I don't remember the name. I wish I could, could credit the author, but she wrote this whole book about this mom and her guilt about going out on a date and leaving her feverish child with a babysitter. And it was this big dilemma. Sure. And I have faced that many times, you know, do I go on the date? Do I stay home with the sick kid or the angry kid or the frustrated kid or the kid that doesn't want me to go out? You know, you name it. And in the book, she chose to go out on the date and she worried and she fretted the whole time and she didn't get a second date because she kept checking her phone. She kept calling the babysitter and the guy said to her, look, if your kid is sick, just tell me that I would have rather rescheduled when I could have your full attention than to." watch you sneak to the bathroom put your phone in your lap you know and it was it was I learned from that I learned from her experience so I didn't have to make that choice so after that I'm like well that makes a whole bucket of sense so when my kids are sick I'm like you know I'm really sorry I hate to reschedule and I want to give you my full attention on our date so I can't do that when my kid is sick so could we reschedule they've always rescheduled (laughs) <laughs> oh, sure. But I wouldn't have never, I never would have had that languaging. I never would have had that. Like I literally used the languaging of the author in my own experience. And that's what I think is really powerful for writers.
0: Absolutely. I was a single mom too. Um, and I remember I took a new job and it was, we'd moved to New England. It was me and my youngest and he was maybe six or seven and we didn't have any furniture yet. And we're just in mm-hmm. this empty, you know, townhouse and I'm thinking what have I done this is you know not a great idea and I went to the local bookstore and got a book called Practical Magic by Alice Hoffman who writes books set in New England and and lovely novels and it was about these two sisters and they were single moms and and it it would just made my whole yes my whole day and my I thought oh I can do this look they've done it and it was it was fabulous it really it really began my love affair with New England and really helped me. And, and and to this day, I'm a huge Alice Hoffman fan. So, you know, books, books take you new places and teach you new things.
1: Right. And they teach you by osmosis. You know, you're not even, you know, like I wasn't planning to learn about how to be a single mom from this book. You know, I just happened to look and, and go, and this, it, the same character cooked on Sundays. she, Sunday, she would get up, she would take her kids to church, she would go to the grocery store after, she would come home and she would cook like a roast, uh, a, a chicken and like, I don't know, something else. She'd put her potatoes in, she cooked all this stuff, and then she'd put them in, in, you know, put them in her fridge so that every night she could come home from work, her kids would sit down and dinner and mix and match food. Oh, that's And crazy. I thought, this is fabulous. I learned that like when my youngest was like three and my oldest was six. And I, I still do that Paula to this day.
0: Well, I wish I'd read that book because my kids got so tired of crockpot pot meals. And they're like, no mom, please no more. Crock pot right. Meals. No
1: more stew. No more. Right. So I mean, but you know, here's what a great idea just from a simple, what the okay. character did. I thought that's a great idea.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: Yeah. And you know, let's talk about some other gifts. Um, I really like, um, I like Barnes and Nobles and Amazon, you know, Kindle gift books. And both of my kids got Kindles for Christmas. And I do give to my, you know, if I'm buying for a child, I will buy the kid a Kindle. And it's amazing to me that you can zap these books back and forth and share them. You know, and I know there's a bar. I have a Nook. I have a Kindle. I have an iPad. I have every gadget under the sun. So I'm not trying to endorse any one specific product. But the cool thing is, I don't know about you guys, but we don't have lockers at our schools anymore. So all of the children carry all of their materials in their backpack. Oh, wow. Yes. So if you have science, math, history, We we weigh my kids' backpacks. My kids' backpacks weigh, on average, anywhere from 15 to 23 pounds.
0: That's excessive.
1: It is. And they're on their backs. You know, some of them, you know, that's not cool to use the roller suitcase kind of (laughs) backpack. So, you know, they'd rather have back and neck injuries. But, But if I can provide to my kids who are both avid readers a new book, I can zap it from my computer right to their Kindle and say, you know, here's a new book for you. I think you'll like it.
0: Well, that's the glory of, of, of book buying today is that you have so many formats. You have, you know, trade paper, mass market paper, hardcover for people who like first editions and, you know, want to buy their, their um, favorite author. Plus you have, plus you have all the eBooks on all these devices. So, you know, there's really, No reason to ever be without a book. That's the way I look at it.
1: Right. Or something to read or something to look at or something, you know. And I think, you know, that was one of the things when all these digital devices came out. Because I run a technology company, everybody's like, oh, it's going to kill publishing. It's going to kill this. You know, and in fact, it's the exact opposite and made just a huge explosion. And... You know, one of the things that I really like, especially for the military family, you know, when you PCS move from place to place, you're charged by the pound. That's so awesome. when you look at, like, you know, my excessive, I have an excessive book collection. <laughs> I actually, if I really love a book, Paula, I'll buy both. You know, cause a lot of times you can buy the add on, you know, I'll buy the package. Like if I really love a book, I'll go back and I'll buy, or if I know I'm going to love it and want to keep it forever, I will buy the digital version. I will buy the audio version and I'll buy the book version Yeah, it's because insane. a lot of times I lend the book and then I'm, I, I lost my book.
0: Absolutely. No, you know, when I was a kid, we moved all the time and each of us was allowed one or two hobbies right so because we couldn't take everything with us because we did have that pound limit so my father it was he took all his uniforms and his boots and that was military stuff my mother was decorating magazines and I was books and rocks because I was a rock hound and a bookworm
1: oh rocks I,
0: was, I, was, I know rocks were heavy that was yeah you know, and so were books so I had the heaviest of them. right I'm
1: like, you probably ate up the whole pound thing just with your uranium collection
0: well we just moved into a huge old colonial built in 1760 and we moved from a tiny cottage and all the movers kept saying what are all these books all, are these all boxes of books and there were you know like a hundred of them and I said yes and my husband said to me well aren't you going through them before we move I said why we're going to a much bigger house I don't know I just get to buy more I don't get to I don't have to I don't have to get rid of any it's all awesome. right
1: Well, and they are, like for me, they're friends and they, books got me, I was a middle child growing up and, you know, I was kind of lost in the shuffle a lot. So I could always take a book, climb a tree and make a new friend. And I could bring my friends wherever I went. And in my current house here, I have a library. I have a whole room dedicated just to my books. And I have you know, 360 degree bookshelves and there's a few tchotchkes on there, but by and large, and they're all organized. I even treated myself to these little clip on pushy things that you put on the bookcase. So I have my cookbooks identified, you know, wow. I have them and everything goes in their place. And I always will think of like, remember the old pottery barn catalogs and they would take the book covers and make them all white. And I was like, why would you do that? Like, exactly.
0: Exactly. Why would you do that?
1: First of all, you can't tell your books apart. You know, I have probably 400 cookbooks. I kid you not. I don't, I read them. I read them like books. I like to read the sidebars, you know, I collect them and, and I've got everything from a Wiccan cookbook to, you know, the Idaho church fair from 1978 cookbook. They're just, you know, it's, it's fun. It's fascinating. And, you know, when I used to see those Pottery Barn decorations that look so pretty, I'm like, why did you cover up the book jacket? That's like album art. Yes,
0: I can never understand that. I mean, I have about a thousand books on writing as a writer. You know, Every book on writing I, I have, and I've had them forever, and I'm never giving them away. And every time I do give one away, I always regret it. But no, no, you can't, you can't decorate that way. I, books mm-hmm. are beautiful all on their own. They don't need new cups.
1: They are, and I love like I have like four or five editions of Strunk and White. I have my original Strunk and White right, that goes way back to like like seriously like 1991 when I went to college, you know. And it's all dog-eared and tattered, and it still has my marks. But there are books like that 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 are your history, like they, you know. And I have a lot of these divorce self-help books: how to raise kids, how to raise boys. You know, Rick Johnson's books. I have the whole set of books by him and I have all my little notes in there and it's funny because I go back to you know some of these how to raise boys books and I I filled in the kids stories like you know I was making notes in the margin going you know this is what he's doing you're like is this normal (laughs) you know but there's history there
0: sure absolutely I mean books tell the story of our lives and and they still sort of generally cosmically but they also tell the story of our individual lives you know you can look you can tell a lot about a person if you look at their library
1: it's true it's true because mine you know I'm kind of you know a little bit Asperger's ADHD my my books go all over the spectrum so you can get anything you know from they're organized but you know there's any topic under the sun but That's the beauty of giving a book, especially if you give a book that you or you get a book that you didn't expect. Like my sister sent me this book series, and I thought, oh, I would never buy this. And then I started reading it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is really good. And I did. I read, you know, she bought me the whole series. And you know, I'm not really into demons, scary, you know, that's not my thing. But I was exposed to it and now I'm hooked.
0: Right, right. Well, that's the glory of a series is you get to revisit your favorite characters.
1: Okay. Yeah. So how do you, when you have, when you have a series, how do you plot out your, your characters to make sure that in book one, they have green eyes and book two, they don't have blue <laughs> eyes and then brown eyes by book three? Um
0: yeah, you have to have kind of a Bible. And with and, the first book, I wasn't, you know, really paying attention. And the second book, I was, oh, I have to remember that. But fortunately, the copy editors, you know, they're very smart and they they don't miss anything. So they, they started a Bible for me for my series. And now with book three, I have to go back and consult the series and the Bible to see, okay, whose color eyes, whose mother, you know, how many siblings, all those kinds of things, details that you, you can forget yeah. from book to book. But uh, it's good to have that Bible.
1: Well, yeah, because continuity is important.
0: Absolutely. You
1: know, I used to do continuity at CBS when I worked there. And, you know, and it was funny because you would just sit there and look at the scene and then go, oh, you know, this is in the wrong place. You'd go back and fact check it, you know, you know, rewind, look at these things and go, okay, we need to fix that. You know, because it is, it's like one of my favorite movies from many years ago was Twister. It was a, um, you know, a tornado movie. Yeah, it was great and, Well, you have to watch it for the bloopers because it's really funny. Like when that house rolls and they drive the car through it, the windshield's broken, then it's not cracked. Then it's cracked and then it's not cracked. And it goes back and forth, you know, and little things like that I catch, you know, and I I guess it's an occupational hazard. But it's really fun because, you know, even in these blockbuster films, you know, it's hard to remember everything.
0: Sure. Oh, and, and believe me, readers are so astute. If you make any of those kinds of mistakes, you hear about it, uh, you know, absolutely hear about it. I was with Anne Cleves who writes the Vera and Shetland novels. I was at a conference with her last month and someone asked her about Vera's mother and she said, oh, well, she either died in childbirth or when she was very young. It depends what book you read because that was one of her bloopers. <laughs> right, I mean, it's just, you just, you know, you're
1: just human. Yeah. You know, but the funny thing, like you know, about the blue eyes, green eyes, there was a writer in the 80s. I won't name her, but she wrote a series, and the characters' eyes changed as the series went on. And I'm like, she started out blue, she was brown by the end, which I thought was really funny. But then my sister, whose red hair and and brown eyes, had a blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl. After her pregnancy, her eyes changed to green. Oh, wow. And we didn't believe her. We thought, what did you do? And she's like, well, how do you change your eyes? Like, you have color contacts. But she's my sister. So I'm like right up near her eyeballs going, is there anything in there? But sure enough, her eyes really did change from brown to green after a pregnancy.
0: I've never heard of that. That's awesome. Yeah. So if you ever
1: make a boo-boo in a book, (laughs) and if she's a female, she could have had a secret birth and had a child, you know, with a completely different coloring than her, and her, her eyes changed.
0: Oh, that's a good backstory.
1: Yeah. Isn't that cool? And um, yeah, because I look sometimes on Amazon, they have these eye drops that you can put in your eyes that are supposedly color, you know, change the color of your eyes. But I don't know how wants to buy anything on Amazon and put it in their eye. But, you know, I do kind of look at that going, well, I wonder if that works.
0: Yeah. No, that I don't know about that.
1: Yeah. So what are some of your tools that you use You know, as a writer or a reader, like for me, I have, I have my reading nook in my house. I have a specific chair with an ottoman. It's got a side table for my coffee or my tea or my soda. It's three tiers high because I need my chargers. It has the adjustable lamp with like three, four different wattages. Like I'm really picky. And then I have to have a little pillow. And then I have my Barnesy, my little Barnes and Noble Christmas bear from like 20 years ago. That's my nook. And the kids don't go in my nook. The dogs don't go in my nook. Sally can curl up at my feet, but she can't go in my nook. And I have a beautiful black and white plush blanket for winter. And then I have a light daisy summer throw in summer. Like I'm pretty OCD with this.
0: That's, that's great. I have, well, I have a room that's my yoga slash library. Okay. So I do yoga. It's big enough that so I can do yoga in it. It's lined with bookshelves. And, and, all kinds of yoga buddhas and, you know, that, and, and incense and that kind of stuff. So, cause I found, I have two practices, really yoga and writing, and, and they're very similar in some ways. Um, you know, you have to sit there by yourself. It's, it, you have to breathe, you, you know, it's a, you kind of have to let go in some ways for the story to come to you, just as you have to let go in yoga to let this um, work in your body and in your, in your brain and in your heart. So I have that room. But then I also have my living room couch, which is so lovely, especially in the winter. We have we have about, I don't know, almost a foot of snow outside after the past two snow days. And we have a lovely fire. And I sit here, and I have a, a wooden lap desk that, with a lid. It's lovely. It sits right on my lap, and the computer's on there. But I also have a million notebooks, blank books, which I collect. I love blank books. And I have special pens, you know, that people have gotten me, Waterman pens from Paris, and Kareem uh, Rashid, designer pen, another friend got me. So I have all kinds of tools. I use them all, so just to keep working. And then if I get really stuck, I take a walk. My friend, Edith Maxwell, she writes cozies, and she says, she calls them her plotting walks. So when she, when she needs a story idea, she goes for a walk. So I walk the dogs, and I always get story ideas. Walking the dogs, taking showers, and driving the car. Those are the, the best time. If you get stuck, try one of those, and yoga, of course.
1: See, that's awesome, you know, because I think we all have these weird little things, and I thought I was super weird, but I just want you to, like, see all these, like, I collect the little teeny skinny journals, you know, like, because they're just, you know, my backpack gets really heavy, you know, you put your Chrome, or my, I use a, I use a MacBook Air, or I have a MacBook Pro that weighs, like, eight pounds, which is my favorite, but it's heavy, and you know, I always thought I was weird until I realized when you said that, because I have this weird thing with pens and I have this weird thing with journals. And, you know, when I start a new project, you're going to love this because I've ghosted for a lot of a lot of famous people over the past 20 years. And it's one of the ways that I've supplemented my radio income is by ghosting. And so when I get a ghost job, a ghosting, uh, for those of you who don't know that, that's somebody like me who writes something for an author. And then it goes over to the author and they fine tune it and change it and supplement it. And sometimes they're research type pieces, Paula. And then sometimes they're straight old, you know, somebody's book. They just need some assistance on it. And when I do that, the first thing I do is I go to Staples or office Depot and I have to buy a fresh set of pens and they're not expensive. You know, I like to buy these pink breast cancer pens. I have them around here. Or sometimes I like to buy a whole pack of colors Oh, nice. And it's this weird little thing because I have probably a thousand pens in my office. It's not. And then when the project is done, they have to go away. You know, like I donate them a box of pens. I'll donate to the middle school or the preschool. Cause you know, they're always using, using pens for, for projects or whatever, but I have to buy a clean, fresh set of pens. And then I have to buy a clean set of either little mini notebooks I can't reuse something. It's like, it's like got the wrong energy. I don't know what it is. It's like my little voodoo writing series, but I can't, I cannot start without it.
0: Absolutely. I have with every book, I have fresh notebooks. They have to be fresh, new, bought just for that book. And I have little talismans that I put around, you know, (laughs) depending on what's in the book, you know, like when in blind search, a lot of bears, we have a lot of bears in our neighborhood, black bears. And so, I was just hooked on bears. So everything had bears on it. Right. So I had lots of bear things, bear posters, bear pictures, bear, bear, um, you know, little sculptures. And th- I just set them around to help me get in the bear mood. Right. 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 Well, it does.
1: It changes the mood. Yeah. Cause that's, I think one of the things that, you know, I think great gifts for writers are always pens and paper and, you know, you can never, you can never go wrong with those things, you know, um, The weird thing, though, is, you know, for me, switching gears is really hard, Paula, because I go, you know, I care for my 86-year-old dad in my house. Then I have my two kids. I have my radio business. I have my writing business. I don't even have my personal and my own name writing business yet. But switching those gears is really hard for me. And I think that's what you're talking about with the bears is – it's very hard because you write in your home, you know, we're home. So are we cooking? Are we throwing in laundry? Are we writing? Are we whatever? Because I also teach fitness. I teach senior fitness at my gym. I have to put on my gym clothes. I have to go out into a different facility and it's all fitness, all gym. Well, then you come home and it's like, who am I today?
0: (laughs) I hear you. I'm juggling my own writing career with, my career as a literary agent where I sell my client 's work, and I travel a lot for that so i 'm gone about a week a month, usually to new york city and and other places, but usually new york because that 's the center of sure publishing in america and you know i 've trained myself to write on buses and planes and wherever, but I have to have my notebook just for writing my novel, those special novel no- notebooks. And that helps me change gears. I mean, I think these little rituals we have about, we make ourselves a cup of tea, we, we have to use a special pen and a special paper. There are ways that our brain, we prime that pump, right? So we can shift gears more easily. It's, it's and I, I try to do it in terms of blocks of time. Okay, I'm gonna do, you know, two hours, I get up early for everybody else in the house, except the dogs, <laughs> and, you know, and I write my own stuff. And then, I sit down at nine o'clock, I turn on CBS Sunday mor uh, CBS this morning, and I start my my day as an agent, right? And and I, I try to do that and then I have reading hours where I read my clients' work and read new manuscripts. And I, I try to do that and, and set up rituals to go with each to, to make that changing of the gears and changing of the guard a little easier. Because it is hard. And your brain, you know, this multitasking, it's just a myth. Yeah. I wrote a little book on happiness called Happier Every Day. We talk about the brains, the science of brain of, of neuroscience and of happiness, because your brain and your heart and your body are all connected to your level of happiness. And this idea that we can multitask, it's really, it's really not true. No. Like it's our brain trying to change gears more quickly and it, it's not good for our brain. So these little rituals help us change gears more easily.
1: Well, and I, you know, I'm so glad you said that because I really felt um spoiled and selfish because i have this my my macbook okay i have my back macbook pro and it has all the peripherals well i use that for my tech business then you come into my office here and i have the maid's room in my house is now my office room because you know if you're going to work 12 15 hour days pick the smallest darkest coldest room in the house (laughs) um you know, but I do, I have all my equipment here. I have all my sound studio. So when I come in here, I'm Radiohead. You know, I sit down, I'm I'm doing my things. And there was this uh, MacBook Air on Cyber Monday special, which is normally like, I don't know, $1,500. It was like maybe eight or $900. And I kept thinking, oh, like, I really want this. I really, you know, and then, because see, then I get ridiculous because I have to have the backpack. I have to have a dedicated backpack for that. And then I have to have a dedicated pen case and they all have to be the same color. You know what I mean? So like Navy blue is what I identified for this. So I got the clamshell. I got the pat, you know, the uh, the whole thing. But you're helping me realize that beyond my rampant OCD, (laughs) that these little props help us switch gears because my dad and my family are all engineers and they don't understand why I have my little radio office that I have my library for my reading and then up in my room I have a desk for my personal stuff and now I have you can see one behind me there's there's the backpack (laughs) and all the peripherals
0: there's a method to your madness, you know. Yes, because- all the peripherals are color
1: coded. So everything that goes with that one MacBook is blue. The other bag is is kind of a red maroon. So they all but when I pick up the backpack, I know if I'm picking up tech, I'm picking up my radio business, or I'm picking up my writing business. And yes, do I have three computers in there? But I also don't have and the reason we talk about this is I can't be the only person out there like this, Paula. Like <laughs> no. there's you know, in varying, you know, levels, you know, whether it's your bear figurines around the place or your, um, for me, my like OCD crazy backpacks, um, it allows me to switch gears and I don't have the ability. I never have. That's why I work alone from home. Even when I worked at Disney and CBS and taught at USC, I had to have my own office with nobody around and not near anything like elevator noise. I mean, I'm just not built that way. And I can't sit down on one computer and go, I'm only going to do radio. I'm only gonna do tech. I'm only gonna do writing. I can't, I'm like a dog chasing a shiny hubcap, whichever way I go. So these are like little guardrails that I put in to help me stay on target.
0: Absolutely, you know, when I first started out, I was a reporter and, and you know, in a newsroom, it's just chaos and you're, everybody's on the phone and, and you had to learn to focus. Right. You had to focus because and, and and just tune out everything that was going on to get your own work done. And I got really good at that um, to the point where my kids would do this imitation of me when I'm reading a book where they would just hold up the book in front of their face and say, this is mom saying, yeah, sure, honey, whatever you want, because I was, it was whatever's in front of me is what I'm focused on be careful what's in front of me you know and I'm really good at focusing and and, and I'm single-minded and all that but you also I also have to make sure that what's what I'm focused on is the right thing to be focused on at the time yes and I I think that's why the rituals help because nobody can shift gears that quickly and we all have the best ways of working for us and we have to figure out what those ways are if we're going to be productive
1: Right, right, because you know I, I too, you know cut my teeth in journalism, you know i was a I was a reporter for for many years, and I could super hyper focus like that, but what I found was that it was a big effort for me. It was always an effort, and I felt like I was expending all this energy and when i when I started working at one of these companies, I said, "You know, if you let me work from home, I can double my workload, and I could you know because i said when you know you walk by with coffee you distract me when you guys stop for donuts you know it i lose my focus i lose my game and they were used to me being this weird tech person anyway so i'm like whether i'm in the basement of your building or home you know like i could be on the planet mars and still do my job and so they did they let me work from home and start telecommuting cuz i could log into all the computers from from there but then i found paula that the peacefulness of creating that like like occupational sensory deprivation tank <laughs> you know it worked really well for me
0: yeah yeah it works well for me too now that i have the luxury of doing oh. that you know i i love working from home and i love the fact first of all you know i was an acquisitions editor for many years before i became an agent um and i'm not at the office anymore you know i go, i do a lot of traveling to talk to editors and publishers and that sort of thing but When I work from home, I work from home, and I don't have to go to meetings, and I don't have to go all these things that took so much time and energy, and sometimes to no point, right? Right. All those meetings I didn't have, you know, they were a waste of time. We all know meetings are often a waste of time. Right. Meeting time and all that, you know, and it's all gone now. So I'm much more productive than I used to be, simply because my work environment is so different.
1: Sure. Well, I've had to, because I, you know, I had two kids, you know, and I had a kid with health issues. So, you know, using full-time employment at a company wasn't an option, but neither was foreclosing on my house. Like, you know, there was, you know, some kind of middle ground here. So my, my work grew out of necessity, but I think more than anything today, I would like to give permission for everybody to be themselves. To, if you want to be in an office, be in an office. If you want to work from home, work from home. If you want to have five notebooks, brand new and use new pens, you know, just donate them on, you know, all my my supplies and stuff, you know, when I'm done with my OCD Fest, get donated to people who need them, places who can use them, all the books that come in my radio uh, business After I'm done reading them, if I'm not keeping them, they go down to the VA reading room. Like, you know, there's always a way to make it work for everybody. So I want to thank you, Paula, for being my guest today. Her last name is spelled M-U-N-I-E-R. You want to check out her new book, Blind Search. You want to check out all of her other books because she's a fabulous writer. Give the gift of reading to people. Give the gift of pens and pencils because without it, Life is just really drab. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for spending time with us today on Military Mom Talk Radio. We've got
0: more than 200 episodes available to you anytime on iTunes or at our website, MilitaryMomTalkRadio.com find us on Facebook or Twitter. We look forward to another great conversation with you
1: on Military Mom Talk Radio.